Bill, you've said you're an introvert. Yes. I, I, I've never been a... I'm a jokester sometimes. I say things to people and I find a lot of things funny, but I'm not necessarily an outgoing person to a lot of events. And I think it's the good news and the bad news because being out with people is very important in this industry for relationships. But um, I'm very selective, put it that way. I can identify, I'm also an introvert, and I'm also sensitive to my environment. And I was just wondering, how have you accomplished what you've had with being an introvert and some of the walls that it builds, but also some of the creativity that it creates too from being alone or being in a quiet environment? Well, um, I, I think I've learned how to um, split the balance between being a, a, a relatively decent businessman and also protecting my family and myself from you know, the industry in terms of become like a, um, something to eat or devour if you are human. And I never wanted uh, my goddaughter, for example, to be swept up into the industry and the press and all that stuff. And uh, so I do my best to, to, to create a balance. I definitely want to use the press and stuff when I have a film or an app, or a podcast, or a television, whatever it is that I want to promote. But um, there are limits. Sure. So, so I, I've heard some people say that they're extroverted introverts. Would you say that as an actor, if someone is an introvert or they are sensitive, that that is a good thing to adopt when you have to do a networking event or be on? Yes, I mean, you have to be aware of your balance. You have to understand that, <clears throat> you know, you're, you owe the investor in your project the responsibility of helping them to get their money back. So you go on the road, you go around the world, you help market, you help promote, um, because that's part of your job. Because they've trusted you with their dollars, Whatever your personal um, choices are is one thing, but when you're doing work, if the marketing, getting out there is gonna help sell the film and get eyeballs and um, put dollars back into the investor's pocket, that's your obligation and your responsibility. And so I guess part of being a professional is showing up even when you don't want to, which I've heard, whether it's singers, actors, whatever, go through. We all have days we don't want to be somewhere, but knowing that it's part of what we have to do and be on. Um, how can I say? A friend of mine once said, you become a memoir of many faces <laughs> that you have to put together to survive and to let people know they're appreciated, even if you're going through a difficult time not always about you. It's about your responsibility, your obligations, all of those things. And it's about you too. You have to make a priority in taking care of yourself. But it's a very competitive business, a difficult business, and when people trust you with their dollars, 
uh, you have to be responsible for the ROI. And you can't be just, oh, it's about me. It doesn't work. You've said that acting allows you to be many things that in your personal life you may not be able to be, but on camera you can be that. Maybe I'm paraphrasing a bit. Well, I think we're, all of us are everything. And people say to me, how can you say that? Uh, I'm a woman with a child. I'm not a murderer. Okay. Suppose somebody just came up and hit your baby in the head with a hammer. <laughs> what would you call your response to that if you pick that hammer up? No one's saying you're a murderer. No one's saying you're anything, but you're everything. And if you're hired to do a job, the director doesn't hire you to act like that person. The director hires you to become that person. And that's something that most people don't understand about acting. Acting is not, I don't, that word is annoying because it means you're pretending. Acting is not pretending. Acting is becoming. It's surrendering to the spirit of whatever you're, that character you're describing is. There's a thing called stage fright. That's when you're in the middle. Uh, you've given part of yourself up to be the character, but your ego and your fear and paranoia is watching how you give it up and tries to control the shape of that giving up. But real actors, like the ones that I adore and the Kate Winslet's and the Meryl Streep's and the Denzel's when he's really in it and the Sam Jackson's and the Philip Seymour Hoffman's and the Jeffrey Wright's and When those people go there, there's no, there's nobody there <laughs> except that character. And that's admirable. It takes courage. And people don't understand because sometimes you're not in control. You're, you're, you're on a ride. <laughs> if the trust and the person you trust is the director to say, did I ride right? What do you think? Because uh, you don't stand outside and look at your ride. Uh, you ride. And that's what real great actors do. Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my favorite actors of all time. I think he was brilliant. Can someone still be great and have stage fright? They can be great and have stage fright. They can be really good and have stage fright. But to surrender totally to the moment and to totally respond to what the other person that you're acting with is doing, that's a, that takes courage. You're not watching yourself anymore. You're watching the person you're with and the scene. 
You're not watching how you react to what they do. You're responding like we're talking right now. I'm not trying to be a special anything. I'm just responding to what you're asking me. And that's what acting should be. So uh, overcoming stage fright is, is less being sort of this defiant rebel, oh, I don't care what they think of me, and more being so immersed in the moment that all of that is, you don't see it? One of my great acting teachers, when I was a very young actor, when I asked a similar question, he said, I'm going to make it real simple for you. He said, it's like falling into darkness backward. Imagine just falling into darkness backward. No control of your landing, if you're going to be caught or not. Just fall. Everybody said, well, well, suppose there's a rock back there, or suppose there's a, um, I don't know, no pillows and just hard floor. The writer is saying to you, I want you to fall into darkness backward. I'm giving you all the description, the director and I, of who the character is. We've had rehearsals and discussions about who this human being is. I do not want you to describe them to me. I want you to become them by falling into darkness backward. Can you do that? Thinking about the trust fall that sometimes they do in acting classes where you're going to have someone behind you. For those that can do that, is that the ones that can cross over? And there are people that can't do the trust fall. It's... Those are the ones I work with. Okay. <laughs> That's good to know. Okay. Is the ones that can't do the trust fall? The ones that can't. The ones that can't. Okay. Right. Because if you can't, I may love you as a person, I see your potential. But I'm working for a network studio and investors. They divide my day, not into minutes, but seconds. They put a dollar value on every second. Every second I have to spend convincing you to fall in the darkness backward is a second taken away from me making my day. If after three hours I get you to fall in the darkness backward, but I had to cut three scenes from my day and I'm behind three scenes, this is not a good thing. I expect you to come prepared. Is it hard? Uh, I understand that, but it could have been a florist.
So your latest film, Created Equal, how many people would show up on set every day? Depending on the day, courthouse scenes, lots and lots. A smaller scenes, small crew, stunt people. Uh, but if you're directing, you're in charge of a lot of folks, 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 more. Between a big feature film, it could be a few hundred. And you have to translate your vision to everybody, from the Teamsters to the actors to the first and second AD, the DP, sound, wardrobe, props, costume, because for me, um, I have, so I'm a very paranoid director. Um, I go through my sets at least five to seven times every set. I block my DP, everybody comes with me and they know, and I have my assistant write my shot list. So every angle, every shot, every setup, my entire staff and crew have it a week before I shoot. There's no drama, no mystery. You come to the set, cast comes in, I know the blocking, we may make some adjustments, but they know everything. So that when we're there, we work. It's not figuring things out. Rehearsals give you room to, for the actors that don't feel comfortable sitting here, can I sit over here? Fine. That's not a problem. But we don't say, oh, wait a minute. Um, instead of waiting for the sun to shine, wait for the sun to set. That don't happen. Because it makes you, didn't make your day. You just have to be, it's planning. Directors, they're in charge of three things. Well, two things. The creative process. If they translate your vision to everybody. But the second thing is that they're managers. They're managers of three things. Time, people, and money. It's mathematics. You have 12 hours in a day that you can work. A certain number of scenes, they're broken down into setups. Each setup, you have a certain number of minutes to make your day. Actor comes in unprepared, and um, that's a big problem. So, work as a team in a collaborative effort, understanding our obligations and responsibilities. Is the director always the first one on set? Or would you sometimes see other crew members, actors, show up before you, and what did that say about them? There's some actors. I won't mention their names, but they're, they are so involved in legitimacy of what they do. They're there before the crew and me. They just sit on the set and sit in the seat. They know where they're going to be in sometimes, or if, if it's supposed to be their bedroom, they'll go around the bedroom and touch the props and do what is never become familiar with the pictures on the wall and what's in the closet 
What kind of bed sheets are they? What color is the bed? And how soft are the pillows? And why are those pillows that soft? Or why are they harder? Or is the blind closed or is it open? And uh, is there curtains on the wall? Uh, and why was that color chosen for the sheet? And Ah, okay. And they're comfortable because it's their bedroom for the last 15 years. So sometimes they come to the set two days before. And they just sit there and they become organically ingrained. Um, some of the great actors have their own ways of becoming the truth of what they're supposed to be. And I get there and they're there. Hey, Bill, how you doing, man? What you doing here, man? You know what I'm doing. I'm working. I see you and thank you because I, I respect that. They don't just wait for you to tell them what to do. They have their own because I'm an actor too. As you start surrendering to the character that the author has written, it's, it's going to sound crazy. But the character tries to live through you if you accept him or her. I was playing a character once in a movie. I forgot which one it was. And a week before I suppose a film, I started doing this. Never done that in my life. My girlfriend at the time said, what are you doing? I said, wait, she said, you're going. I said, no, I'm not. She says, okay, watch. Five minutes later, I'm going. <laughs> that was the character coming through me. And so I put that in part of the film because I knew something that was being expressed through that person. And it's trust. Trusting your instincts, yourself, and your talent. So if an actor wants to do all those things, bring little idiosyncrasies or ticks or, or show up three hours early. Is that something that they almost feel like they need permission to do? Because I could see a new actor wanting to do those things but being scared because they don't want to offend anybody or whatever. But if they you're a new actor and, and you know what acting is and you have a good director, they'll give you the permission that you need to do and be the best you can. Good directors, their ego is, listen, if I'm shooting a scene with the star of the movie in a car, and we shot half the scene before lunch, and shoot half the scene after lunch, and the, an intern, an assistant, or a caterer comes up to me and says, hey, Bill, Bill. I say, what? The license plate before you went to lunch was straight, but now it's crooked. I don't say, you're the caterer. You're an assistant. Mind your own business. That's stupid. I say, thank you very much, because I didn't see that. And I have my assistant go and straighten out the license plate. You know why? Because I still get directing credit. 
that person is no less than me. That person helped me out. But some people throw phones at people. I don't understand these idiots. Throwing phones in people's faces and this royalty wave like they're superior to human beings and an attitude of superiority like other people are. It's annoying. Because they're all going to die. <laughs> they all bleed. And I do believe, I have no proof, of course, I don't want it, that when they all go to the bathroom and do number two, they stink. And if they don't, if they can prove they don't stink when they go to the bathroom, I will worship them. <laughs> but <coughs> until that moment occurs, <laughs> don't come to me with that crap. You understand? You stink, I stink, we both stink. Cool. Do your damn job. Simple. We're going to assume that they do. We'll just keep it. <laughs> if you're asking me if I'm going to the bathroom, I'm not. <laughs> I'm saying we're, yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll err on the side of caution. Of course. Great caution. Yes. Good, nice Great pun caution. to err. Yeah. yeah air, air is a, <laughs> see, that's, I like that what she said. She says, air. <laughs> air. This is a tricky question, but we'll, it's up to you if you want to answer it. Navigating Hollywood agendas. Sometimes what happens, and I clearly don't have to tell you this, I'm sure this has happened to you in your career, but something will happen with someone. Someone will maybe, it wouldn't even be burning somebody, but somebody's offended. And then they come back to you years later as if nothing had ever happened like your great friends, or they friend you on social media. As a professional, how do you handle that? Do you say, you know what, it's water under the bridge? Are there levels? Some it's water under the bridge, some it's, please stay over there, I think I'm good. Others is, you know what, it was a misunderstanding, I'm fine. I think it's both. I think. Some people you can forgive and forget. Some people you cannot forgive or forget. There are other people you can forgive and not forget. So there's people you can forgive and forget, forgive and not forget. It depends on what they've done. If it's the kind of betrayal from a friend but that not only stabbed you in the back, but held the knife and twisted it a few times to make sure that whatever trust you, trust you had in them died. It's, it's not that she wouldn't work with them again. It's called trust but verify. But, um, I had a martial arts teacher once and they gave us lessons in terms of, said, the teacher said, you know, if a man wants to fight you, run away from him as hard and fast as you can. 
He said, but if he runs after you and he catches you, make sure he never chases you again. He said, revenge is a dish best served cold. Don't shout, don't scream, don't... It's like playing chess. He said, don't be playing chess in the checkers, the checkers in the chess game. He said, play chess. It's not about the outcome, it's the process too. So betrayal happens all the time. Um, betrayal, rejection, and this is part of our industry. It's, it's that you, for the young people coming in this business, I feel, uh, Ben and I talk all the time about this, it's like, they come in with dreams and hopes and nice breads and butts and faces and hair and bodies and muscles and all that stuff. And uh, we were talking yesterday, Ben is going into the acting business, right? So I said, look up the percentage of AFTRA and SAG actors in the union, the percentage that work annually out of 100%. Such a number was 20. And out of the 20%, how many made over $50,000 a year? $100,000. How's that a year? Yeah, that was like... Five? Over 10, that's about 10%, maybe over $100,000 a year. Just deal with those numbers. You're coming in here with hope and dreams, right? Along with thousands of other people that look as good as you on the same day you're coming. Um... They say don't take rejection personally, but I mean, if you get rejected once or twice, you can understand that. But suppose you're rejected every other day for nine years. What's that do to you? Create something called pain. Um, Self-deprecation, um, self-doubt. And a lot of people bury those things with liquor and drugs. And I did that for a while when I first started. It was just so painful. Thank God I found meditation. But I see kids out here now on the street. They came here with hopes and dreams. And you're, when I said it, I mean, literally on the street. Sad. And there's hope. I mean, there's luck and hope and everybody keep dreaming. They should understand the business too. And the good part about today is you don't have to wait to be discovered. You can, you can put podcasts and webisodes up if, I, if it's something relevant and you get one or two million eyeballs, guess what? They come to you. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Been on for 10 years now, right? 
I started out with webisodes. Issa Rae, awkward dark girls, black girls, right? Millions of eyeballs. Got a big deal with HBO. Tangerine was at Sundance two years ago, a movie made with four iPhones. Anybody waiting? I'm waiting for them to see how wonderful I am. These guys got tired of waiting, man. They said, I'm gonna discover myself, and they did. And guess what, when they, when they got that kind of inner confidence and self-evaluation, something changed, something happened. And good for them. I love what you said about rejection. Because sometimes when I'll do, you know, I'll watch videos or I'll read about an actor or a writer or a musician, I find that actually some of them that have really thrived, they had a very painful early rejection. And I'm just wondering, does that almost, because you had that first early painful rejection, any new rejections is like, oh, okay, casting director didn't like me. Well, my own father rejected me, so what could be worse, you know? So I see that sometimes. I've seen, I've, I've actually looked at a lot of people's lives and I've been like, wow, that person I really admire, they grew up in a, in a tough situation. And I'm wondering if that almost helps in some sense. I think you're, Ability to deal with pain and how you deal with that determines your life journey. Um, yeah, every rejection, and this just sounds crazy, but every rejection is painful, but it's not personal. Because the 20 people before you are rejected also. And they weren't rejected because they're not talented. And you may be more talented than the person who got that job, not because they're more talented than you, but because, and this is going to sound crazy, because if you have 50,000 social media followers and they have 5 million, Guess who gets a job? So it's not personal. And it's not meant to be personal. It's business. They put 50, 60 million dollars into the movie. You may do the scene very well, but that other person is going to bring five million eyeballs. So just suppose 10% of them buy tickets. That's 500,000 tickets for opening day. You know, and, and it sounds harsh, but I have a question. Um, if you put $50 million or $150 million into a film, when you be interested on the ROI of your investment. I mean, you may love Henry, but if Sam can bring you 50 million eyeballs for the 150 million you've spent, um, you're gonna think about it.
So we, we think they're mean and horrible people. No, no, no. They're businessmen and women. Bill, if you could pick five books that you would be allowed to read every year, and only those five books, what would they be? There was a library police, and they said, I'm allowing you five, and that's it. Oh, God. I love books. I'm just trying to... Five. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I know. That's limiting. But... An Empire of Their Own. Um... What's his name? Um, what's in the uh, Empire of Their Own? Um, what's the book I always talk about? 1984. Oh, okay. In 1984. But the one with the, about the uh, mythology. Um, uh, Gene Erdman was his husband, and uh, all the major all the major guys read this book, uh, "Hero with a Thousand Faces." That's an incredible book, an incredible book about all the stories of the world have a certain commonality, no matter what they are. Steven Spielberg uses it, Lucas uses it, we all use it. The hero's journey. What is the hero's journey? And there's a commonality to every single hero's journey. I read a book by Stephen Pressfield recently that I read as often as I can. And it's called the War of Art, it's a takeoff on Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And it talks about what is, what, what is it that stops the average person from accomplishing anything they want to accomplish, accomplish. The book is this thick, and the book pisses you off so bad because from the first page, you say to yourself, he's talking about me. <laughs> and he says, the father and mother of incompetence is procrastination. And the rationalizations we come up with to justify our procrastination hours and days of thinking why we're not doing it and justifying it instead of doing it. He says it's easier to know the hand that's choking you than to let another hand in. This has been choking for 40 years. You're not dead. But you're asking me to put another well, near me, I don't, I don't, I don't know this. You know, I know this because that's my. Hand. <laughs> it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant 
brilliant book. And then there are books, I forgot the author's name right now, but um, one is called The Dip. Other one is called The Purple Cow. Seth Godin. Seth Godin. Yeah. Oh, is he great or not? He has a podcast too. Yeah, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Brilliant. Books are just thick. But he tells you and shows you accomplishment. What is accomplishment? Um, that's four. And then my favorite poet is T.S. Eliot. Four quartets. It, 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 it's the last thing he wrote, I think, before he died. And he talks about how every piece of poetry he wrote before that is meaningless to what he just is writing now. And he talks about what he's learned in life and puts it in a poetic format. Um, Federico Fellini and Frank Capra are two of my favorite directors of all time. Reading Eight and a Half. Um, every year I, I watch and sometimes look at the script of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and um, It's a Wonderful Life. The messages, the, the courage that he had at that time. And when he was tortured by McCarthy for saying he, things he said and accused of being a communist, but he went on and did it anyway. He, he has encouraged my career. And um, I can't remember the name of the director now, but the script I could read over and over and over again because it's so brilliant. And the film I could watch a thousand times because it's so brilliant came out around nine or 10 years ago called Run, Lola, Run. Have you ever seen that one? I've seen the trailer. You've got to watch it. I know. It's on my list. He's a genius. <laughs> when I say genius, uh, he never got the credit he deserved, uh, but he, the film is told pictorially and structurally through methodologies that no one else has ever seen done. It's that way. It's like, I'll, I'll give you one example. It's, it's a, it's a twenty-hour, four-hour thing. This woman is called by her boyfriend, supposed to deliver drugs to a drug dealer. He doesn't have the drugs. He has to have the money to the drug dealer because he lost the package on the plane, and the drug dealer is coming in like three, two, three hours, and he's got to be at a drug store. I mean, at a pharmacy to meet the drug dealer. And if the drug dealer sees him have the money, he's going to get killed. So his girlfriend does everything she can to make sure. So the film is divided into all the attempts she makes. And it starts her back at the apartment over and over again and runs down the steps to different places. Now, when she runs down the steps, she runs down the steps she's running, a door is open to an older lady's apartment and it moves over the older lady's shoulder into the TV and the TV shows our hero running down the steps. 
When she gets in the street, she passes people. And everybody she passes, you see in five seconds a flashback of their entire lives, who they are. And when she gets to the place where she tries to get the money for him, and it fails, you go back to the apartment, the phone rings and he says, I'm gonna die if you don't get here. She gets up and she runs again to try to get the money from someplace else so called Run Lola Run. It's brilliant, brilliant. When you see people working harder than you, what does that do for you? Inspire me. I see working, people working harder than me. I can't imagine that. But if I do, it inspires me to work harder. I mean, good is not good enough. And great is not good enough. Excellence. Excellence. Your name's on it. And even if you didn't have the budget you needed, you got to take what you have and do the best you can with what you're given. You sit there and make one million look like 20. You got to do it. And it takes work. And sleep is not something you uh, do. Were you always like this? I had a parents who taught me ethics that I didn't know they were teaching at the time. I was very, very young, and um, my father and mother used to say to my sister and I, Bill and Yvonne, always remember this. You're no better than anybody else, but nobody else is better than you. And they said, never ask anybody for anything. Go get it. My father worked three jobs, my mother worked two, seven days a week sometimes. And they wouldn't take welfare or social assistance. They were too proud. So I was I hit a low point in New York City one time and almost homeless and I literally was getting high all the time on different things, and I was on the street. I had my hand out, and I was begging for money. And this older lady came by one day, and she looked at me and said, ma'am, can I have some change? And she looked at me, and she walked by. I thought she was gone, so I asked the next person. And I felt a little tap on my back. It's the same old lady. I said, yes, ma'am, you got change? She looked in my face and she said, son, do your mama know you're out here doing this? I said, no, ma'am. She shook her head. She just walked away. Didn't give me a dime. I turned around, I sit on the steps never beg for money again. You still see her face? Yes. Oh, yes. 
I turned around and I looked, I just walked, I, I walked her, she walked two blocks and took a left and I watched her. Changed my life. Reminded me what my parents told me. And I, I, I had a college education and I had a master's degree and blah, blah, blah. My mother and father went to second and third grade and they never asked anybody for anything. I had to carry that legacy on. Changed my life. I'm not mean. When people come to me with excuses and stuff, I always say to them, oh, you got a lot of excuses. Oh, wow, you, life is hard, huh? Wow. Hmm. Sometimes I tell them, come with me for a second. Get in my car and I ride down the street. Look to your left. Look to your right. I said, do you want that? He said, oh, no. <laughs> I said, that's the point I'm making. So I'm not suggesting it's easier that you're not suffering, but do you want that? I mean, you ain't got to look far, you know. It's the suffering going on. I hear that's. I go down to Fifth and Spring. You'll see children crawling in and out of dumpsters for food. So what do you think people under 25 or 30 not understand about success in Hollywood? Maybe they think, oh, I'll never be that. You know how everybody always thinks, I'll never, I could never end up like that, which sometimes is just a matter of bad, you know, circumstances piled up in one to lead someone there. And they think, oh, I have a safety net. That would never happen to me. But the general 25, 30-year-old that comes out here with a degree. Dreams that are the plan is called frustration. Um, there are two things I would address it with. Uh, one is the God joke, you know. You know the God joke? Tell them your plans? Or, oh. Or is that John Lennon, no, life is what no, I want? No, that's, that's a God joke. <laughs> okay. make, make God laugh, tell him your plans. And, I mean, one thing I find with the, with the younger generation now, uh, it reminds me of a story of um, a minister, that's a friend of mine, told me, he said, uh, he said, Bill, you know, one, one day I stood up in church and I said to my congregation, he said, Everybody that wants to go to heaven, stand up, dance, and sing hallelujah. The whole church, 1,500 people, got up and they shouted for five to 10 minutes. He had to calm them down. Whoa, whoa, okay, 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 okay. He said, uh, my second question. Everybody wants to die, stand up and sing hallelujah. Everybody sat there with their arms folded. <laughs> so I got my third question. He said, how in the hell are you going to go to heaven if you don't die? <laughs> See, everybody wants to go to heaven. But don't no damn body want to die. 
and dying for Hollywood's about. How do you resurrect yourself after you're smashed a couple of thousand times? Do you buy a violin and play the little self-pity moments of how unfair everything is and how great you are and how mean they are? Or, and that could go on for 30 years, 40 years. Or do you take the initiative to do something that changes that? It's only one of two choices, giving up or moving ahead. And a lot of folks just, and these are people who've been in the industry 20 years and they talk to them about, well, you know how hard it is and these damn agents and these studios and networks and, really? Hmm. You've heard of the internet? Yeah, but that doesn't, uh, is that a webisode, podcast? No. Why? I don't know how. How can you don't learn? That's too hard. <laughs> but you're expecting a different result. But you're doing the same thing. That's called insanity. So all you can do is tell people, through your loving caring, tell people, but not everybody listens. They, they just... You don't listen. They're afraid to jump into the pond, you know. It's like today, it's a whole new world in terms of this industry. And say there's a pond and the success ranges over there. And a lot of folks just jump in. They can't swim but they do the best they can to get to the other side. While they're doing that, some of us put our arm in the water. Is it too cool? Is it too deep? Is it too warm? A lot of waves out there. And by the time the pond cools down and you start moving to the other side in your little boat, there are signs put up by the people who took the chance. And those signs say, entry fees. <laughs> and you know why? Because they deserve it. Well, you over there cowardly thinking. They didn't wait. They jumped. They didn't know if they were going to drown or not. They, they didn't know anything. They just know that, but it's ever over there. <laughs> I'm going to get some of that. So I don't have that. I don't want to be here anyway. It takes that kind of desire. On my wall in my office, I have a picture, which is my favorite, favorite picture. It's, it's an ostrich or a, a swan who's swallowing a frog. And the frog is halfway down the swan's throat. But there's one problem. The frog has its hands around the swan's throat, squeezing it. The swan's like, and the title says, never give up.
You can be down their throat, but as long as you got your hands around that throat, can't swallow you. What if someone says, well, I'm going to be 30 in March, so, you know, I'm just going to pack it in. I'm not going to make it here. What about this new pressure, this 30 under 30, 25 at the top, you know, people in tech, developing apps, whatever, this, this new bar that we've, we've set that where you have to be a certain age, or if you haven't, might as well pack it in. Well, the system is set up for the youth, and they assume that whatever older ones of us have survived, and the wisdom of knowledge that we have is irrelevant. I just pat them on the little damn heads and say, good luck. When I was a young man, there was a, there was a saying. I never forgot it. And it was, when I was a young man, I thought my father to be a fool. Now that I have grown older, oh, how wise he has become. So when you're young, you think you know every damn thing until life smashes you in the face with the truth of its indifference toward you. And all those dumb people that you think are older and you don't listen to, once you get a couple of scars, you'll see how stupid they really are. It's got to be scarred first. You know, because us talking, and they don't know nothing. Yeah, 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 yap, yap, yap. Yeah. Your generation's in the past. But when you get crushed, and by crushed, I don't mean by not being successful. Uh, ask what the cost today of being successful is. It's coming out. So you have success, but you paid for it. And so with that success comes shame. Because you wanted the success more than your self-respect. And you notice all these people coming out now and saying, this is the price I paid, and I've been this miserable for all these years. But thank God I can say me too. And it took something off of me. Can you imagine being successful, knowing the price you paid, and choking on it for the rest of your life? <laughs> hey, everybody, I'm just fine. I'm just... I'm great, and I don't care about what I had to do, except when I sleep at night, or can't sleep at night. Reality. What about wanting notoriety? Notoriety. These days, people will do anything for notoriety. Some of the things I see on the internet, I cannot. 
I mean, are they really doing this? Uh, he just pointed out to me yesterday, a friend of his is an artist has been accused of, of uh, sexual harassment of three women. But he pointed out to me, one of these women has a website. And every one, one of the, she has hundreds of pictures on her website, right? The most obscenely, provocatively, sexually ex explicit pictures that you can imagine. But a victim of this dude, who's getting no due process, by the way, because she said so, he's guilty. A friend of mine worked at CBS for 15 years, and a woman said that five years ago, he looked at her in a suggestive manner that made her feel uncomfortable. They fired him on the spot. They didn't want the, the promote, they didn't want the publicity. So, these days people do things, I, 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 sexual acts. I mean, this guy was on, this murderer was on, and he put a selfie up talking about how he killed people and how he did it. He didn't use a gun because he wanted to use a knife to, and see them die slowly. And then there are little kids now taking drugs uh, and doing other kinds of things online. Young girls, sexual acts, bullying and saying how brave I am and um, little girls going to school, 12 years old, with guns in their gun, their backpack and people getting shot. I mean, I mean, for notoriety, I guess, being famous now has taken the place of any kind of self-worth. As long as you like me, I'm okay. I ain't gotta like myself, because you like me. But when you're alone, doesn't that bother you? I mean, I, I, I don't understand how... Just having recognition, or having people know who you are, or having a million eyeballs, I guess that gives you identity these days. And that's just beginning in the next two generations. Three to five common mistakes you see new actors making on set. Common mistakes. Number one. New actors, for the most part, and some actors which just their egos are out of shape, believe 
that acting is about talking or speaking their lines. They have no understanding of the art of listening. We are having a conversation. What a conversation is, you speak. I listen closely to what you're saying because I want to respond to your question. Most actors have memorized their line. So no matter how you say it or what anything, they just respond with their line. And on camera, it looks like, no, wait a minute, she was crying. Oh, Becky, you want to go to the prom? No, no, she was crying when you gave her the flower. Oh, yeah, take two. Hey, Becky, you want to go to the prom? <laughs> Cut. You go have a long talk in the corner, okay? <laughs> um, the second biggest mistake, I think, is that some actors are not collaborators. You know, it's like they're so insecure. It's like their scene. And so they go in with an attitude like, well, this is my scene because I have more lines than you, you know, so you're, you know. And there's two people in the scene. There's two people in the scene. If you're doing a monologue, it's just you. But there are people's egos who are so large that you're not even there. So it's like, that's how good they can be. And that's annoying as hell. The third thing is nerves. I mean, I've literally seen, I had to stop shooting a scene. Because in the middle of the scene, the actor was sweating so badly <laughs> that we had, had to cut. Are you okay? What happened? What happened? <laughs> when I say sweat, I'm talking about because internally they are so worried about the fact that they're not doing it right that they just, something internally happens and they just are terrified. And so as a director, you got to call and give them, you know, make sure they, they know that they're protected. Make sure it's, if they, you, you got to give them reassurance. Because acting is, it's, 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 it's surrendering. It's not holding on to safety. That's easy for me to say, but try it sometimes. Try going in and trying to do it and you don't know how it's gonna turn out. And you ask, how was I? How, how did it go? It was great. Can I see it? You know, it's like you don't know how it was because you were involved in it. And not knowing what to do is 
or not feeling safe that you've done it well, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Put it that way. Well, they say having a big ego and a small ego is, is pretty much the same thing. It's just sort of different ways of dealing with it, maybe. Having a big ego, I think, is a sign of a small self-regard. Having a small ego is similar. I think, I forgot his name, but Wayne Dyer, I think his name is. I love Wayne Dyer. And he said, you know, the key to having a great life is to get rid of your ego. And the audience said, what are you talking about? He said, do you know what the, the, the word ego stands for? E-G-O? He goes to the board and he says, E, edging. G, God, zero, out. <laughs> he says, your ego edges God out. And without that force in your life, he says, you have nothing but empty accomplishments. And he says, try eating those empty accomplishments when you're sitting home alone because nobody likes you in your mansion. He said, it's more comfortable than being on the street. He said, but when you ride by that person sitting on the street, it looks familiar. I think he was brilliant and true. I know very wealthy people who are miserable. There were many. And when he didn't fill the hole, cars didn't fill the hole, clothes didn't fill the hole, vacation didn't fill the hole, relationship didn't fill the hole. There's something else that you have to have. I'm not saying I know everything, but I do know, because I've had a lot of it, that all those things don't fill the hole. If you don't have self-love, even if somebody else loves you, if you don't have self-love, I tell my daughter every day, I say, you know, never forget, men treat you the way they see you treat yourself. Don't treat yourself the way you think he should perceive you. Treat yourself the way you want to be treated. I think it's a general for people. I love quotes, so. I can give you three of my favorite quotes. Sounds great. You can't be trying to please everybody. Except you. Yeah. Not good, right? People pleasing disease.
<laughs> it's a disease. Yeah, it is. What happens to you when you need something? Where do they, where they go? And what is it called? The woodwork people. Hmm. When you're doing real good, they come out of the woodwork. Oh, yes. When you're doing bad, they go back into the woodwork. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I started doing real good, real good. People come out of the woodwork. Oh, Cousin Bill. I don't <laughs> How to become their cousin? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, you have some quotes? I know quotes. you said you love quotes, Bill. Yeah, I got four. Uh, Winston Churchill. True power is an individual's ability to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Anonymous. Aspire to inspire before you expire. Anonymous. If a man does not seek humility, humility will seek the man. And my final one, anonymous. In your lifetime, you will never see a smaller package than a person wrapped up in themselves. Like that. And I found each one of those to be true. I'm sure you're asked about this scene constantly, but the interrogation scene from Menace to Society. I was wondering if you could just, I know, this is a, probably you've been asked this question so much, but. If you could just take us back to that day, just doing that scene, what was it like for you? I just finished doing a film, uh, I think it was in Canada, and uh, acting in a film, and I rushed back, and the same day that I came in, I had to be on the set, the Hughes Brothers. And uh, I just loved their work, I liked who they were. I read the script and I loved it. There's only one scene, and um, It's like, the way they set it up uh, got me immediately into the mood because the room was dark, except there were like three spotlights, one on the young boy, one on the middle of the table where the gun was, and one on myself, and everything else was in shadow. And the police had brought this young man into this place to intimidate him into telling the truth. And so, he was sitting there really nervous, you know, and he thought he was smarter than everybody in the, in the room. And so when I questioned him, it was like, I first brought the gun in, put it on the table and turned it toward him. But said to him, you're not necessarily getting out of here alive. There's nothing you can do about it. What are you going to do? We can all say that you reached for the gun and we defended ourselves and shot you. We didn't say those words, we just went like that. That, was the, that, was, that said it. When he saw that, it was like, oh boy, okay. And we started asking him questions. I started asking him questions about, was he there? And he said no. And 
you said you left the beer here and you bought the beer at this time, you drank the beer at this time. And then he was, his, I saw his hands start shaking. And then I asked him the same question again. And he then, the second time, said, a different time. And that's when I knew that I had him. And, you know, the, that little gang thought they were so smart and we were so stupid. It was a, number, it was a, it was a feeling of joy when I said to him, you know something? No, you're not fucked up, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. You know you're not fucked up, right? <laughs> now, here's what's crazy. I was in Brussels, Belgium around five or six months ago acting in a film with Nicolas Cage called Mandy, right? I, I, I'm sitting in a restaurant eating food by myself. This young Belgian kid comes up to me and says, excuse me, sir, but you know you're not fucked up, right? Oh my God. <laughs> I laugh so hard, but no, I, no matter what country I go to, I mean, I've made a lot of films as an actor and director, and the line that said to me the most around the world, no matter what city I go from, and you know something? They're young kids. That's what's amazing to me. They've all seen that picture. I don't know how they see it, but they see it and they all repeat that line, and older people too. So yes, it's it's... It's interesting. How has that impacted your life? I'm sure it's got to feel good that people know your work. Yes. At the same time, maybe you're surprised that they're young kids that are seeing this film and from all walks of life. What does that do to someone? Well, it means you did a good job because you impacted them in that way. You also wish there was more that they remember you for other than just that line, but you know, you're appreciative of the fact that they've seen your work and they appreciate what you've done. And that's always good. You know, because I'm very self-critical of my work. And so when someone affirms that what I've done impacted them, that, that's a very, it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. They don't have to be kind. They don't have to come up to you. They don't have to, but they do. At a certain age, you think, you think you've been forgotten about and you haven't. That's rewarding also, especially when young people do it. And from different countries. Has your self-criticism lessened over the years? As you've seen life, as you've seen that even the most perfect fall or, or what seems to be not so perfect are actually saviors, I mean, I'm, I'm just like coming up with stuff, but you know how usually people become less critical as they realize that we're all human. You had talked about in the beginning, we won't go exactly what you said, so I won't have to repeat it, but no one's perfect and, and we're all human, we're all pretty much the same. When I was a young man, I'm writing my autobiography now, and uh, do a lot of thinking before I wrote this book. 
one of the things I learned, I, when I was young, I thought that wisdom was when you knew everything. You've gone through so much that you've now figured out what it's really about. Uh, then I started studying quantum physics and other things and astrology and uh, ast you know, I mean astronomy and other things that, for example, not only have they not discovered what all, that, how many planets there are, they don't even know how many galaxies there are. That dark space that they're going into now. And the thing that I realize now that I'm 74, be 75 this month, is to never, ever stop asking why. That's true wisdom. To understand the, how limited our brain is. You know, Albert Einstein spoke on it, you know. People think I'm wise. No, I'm not wise. He said, just like, I'm always wondering, I'm always exploring, I'm always thinking, I'm always trying to get more information because it gives you a recognition of who you really are compared to the size of this. You, you, you go outside at night to the beach and you lie down and look at the sky. There's no end to it. And you think of yourself within that context. It's not that we don't have relevance, but comparatively speaking, we are just, oh, that's too big. I can't get it small <laughs> enough. It's like we're in there someplace. But our egos tell us we're everything, and there's nothing beyond, and all that garbage. Until something catastrophic happens, and it makes us question. I don't wait for the catastrophic. I question every day. Someone tells me, this is a fact. Okay. Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> I love Google. I don't like Wikipedia, though. It's not my Wikipedia. It's, you know there are young people doing research papers on Wikipedia? But when I Google things and go back to multiple research points and find out how many different opinions there are about the same thing, and then I have to think about it, that, that, that expands my brain. That, that makes me, oh. I never thought of it that way. That's, that's exciting to me. But sitting back like this old, wise person who I figured it all out, that's a lot of crap. I don't hear that from anybody. Not that you have, do not have information that could help me in terms of talking to you, because you're humble enough to recognize my humanity as I'm humble enough to recognize yours, that's a different situation because you may know some things I don't know. 
And I want to hear those things so I can start thinking. But if you're looking down at me from this place of authority or, you know, my, when my sister and I were children, there are two people we were told to never question. Your minister and your doctor. Well, today, those are the people I question most. Because you're going to tell me what to believe. You're giving me your opinion of my life. I'm getting other opinions. Now I'll put them all together, and I'll make the decision. Not you make the decision for me, because I'm responsible for my life. Not you. And I appreciate your input. I'm going to ask five other people like you to give me your input, too. Then I have all, ah, okay. I'll make a decision. How do others in the industry relate to your work ethic? They learn think I'm crazy. I mean, if I don't get it done, I can't sleep. You know, no matter how tired I am, if I don't get it done, my work that day, I can't sleep. So I'm worried about it the next day, and okay, how many hours do I have to get it, you know, just because it's, and, and so I meditate, and the meditation helps me, but they respect it because I don't stop. Because I'm super, super, super prepared. They don't have to guess. So I said a week before we shoot, they have every shot, every single setup and shot of the movie on a piece of paper. All they gotta do is follow the map that I've created. I'm not saying they don't have the freedom within that context to say, hey, but what about this? What about that? Right? But you have a map. So they respect that. Family-wise, relationship-wise, never been married. Um... It's, I've been very selfish, and the, the women in my life have hated that uh, because of my work ethic. I try not to bring my work home, but next day I want to go prepared. I want to, I want to be able to, so, okay, let's have a few moments of camaraderie and whatever. Okay, great. I go work on the script, and that's the most, that's not the most comforting of things in a relationship. Because we owe each other the attention that each other needs. And I've always struggled with that. I always have in relationships. I might. And the other thing, it sounds crazy, but being a black man in this business, 
I felt I always had to be better. Not as good, but better. Because as good is not good enough. So I'm always paranoid. I gotta be super duper duper super prepared. I have to, you know, so I'm speaking for more than myself as an individual. I'm speaking for culture. Because we're, we're judged like that, you know. Well, oh, I didn't know he wasn't gonna be that good because he's black. And he's, he's, a, he's a B guy, you know. <sighs> Never wanna be a B. Never wanna be an A. A plus plus. And it takes, I don't sleep much when I work. It's always in my mind, I, I can't explain it, it's just, and the stuff I shot the day before, I know I, know I could have done it better. <sighs> if I had three more hours. I just wanted to be better, I wanted to be my legacy that it's excellent, it's something that I gave a thousand percent. But um, it's crazy too because you know it's it could always be better you know it's it's always oh, it could be different but it's kind of like a little neurotic type deal but it's who I am as a creative person. Some people know the level of intimacy they're comfortable with, and I'm not talking about physical intimacy. I'm just talking about being amongst people, and some people are better just focusing on a career. I think they just know that about themselves. And unfortunately, it's gotten a bad rap. But if some people know that, you know what, I, a career is the most important thing to me. And if I, if I get someone into my world, I may end up hurting them because I'm not going to be available for them. How can they be okay with that? That's a good question. It's a good question, you know, because um, you have one or two choices. I'm going to satisfy your needs and ignore the truth of my own. I'm going to satisfy my needs and ignore the truth of the relationship's needs. I tried this once because I liked the person so much. I tried not taking a job and staying in the house and watching the flowers grow and doing all the things she liked. And I, she was happy. But there's the truth that I, I, I realized something after a few months of um, feeling resentment. 
and then that eventually started manifesting itself. So it wasn't, I was, I was fulfilling the desires, but I wasn't happy because I was lacking something. I've always been a worker. I always wanted to work. Um, work stimulates me. It gives me fulfillment. It's not that I, don't, I, don't, I, mean, I need romantic fulfillment like everybody else. I need love and caring like everybody else. But love and caring without me feeling engaged in something I'm so passionate about, which is my work. If I gave that up, I, 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 it's not good for a relationship with me. And, it's, and that, that's, what, that's what's so difficult, you know. It's, I think I spoiled my goddaughter because it's like, you know, since three we spent so much time together and I helped raise her and spoiled her and everything, you know, because uh, I don't think I was there enough. I just kept doing things, things, things. We worked it out, of course, but it's like she's traveled around the world in many places and everything, and that's all good, but she was saying all the time, can we just sit down and just meditate? Can we just sit down and just talk? And yes, I, I do that. But Everybody's saying, well, you're 74, you're going to be 75 February 26th. Why do you have to still be working? So what else am I going to do? Retire, just, you know, just sit in the porch and the beach, watch the flowers grow and, and uh, enjoy the air and... That's the rest of my life, huh? <laughs> Enjoying the flowers. <laughs> Suppose I could discover how the flowers are made. <laughs> Suppose I could discover where the sky came from. Where. Suppose I could discover where air comes from and the source of reality. And film it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, one of the my heroes of discovery. He's older than me. as Morgan Freeman with his new network, and and his whole program about God. You know, who and where is God? What is God? Where? I mean, these amazing thinkers. Cause he plays those questions himself, and he just the, the 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 his brilliance of going into those topics and understanding God. What does that mean to cultures around the world? That's fascinating to me. But it, he he still has an open mind. He still wants to learn and know. That's inspiring. I watched last night a show. Uh, Terry Bradshaw um, 
and the boxer, I forgot his name, but so it's probably going to call it Better Late Than Never. And these four older men, they're in their 70s and some in their 80s, and with this one young guy, the son of, I think, Terry Bradshaw, goes with them around the world. And they visit places they've always wanted to visit before they die, but they do it together. It's funny, it's inspiring, it's powerful. Because they don't stop, they just, no. Before I, I get a certain amount of time left, I'm gonna do everything I ever wanted to do. And that, there's something about that's wonderful. It's beautiful. Because they don't say, I'm retiring and I'm gonna lay up in bed and just watch the uh, birds go by. They're flying with the birds. <laughs> That's how it feels to fly. Oh, okay. I love it. That's life. A lot of my friends work at jobs they hate for 35 years. They work every day, but they're to be admired. Health insurance, car payments, house note, send the kids to college. All the dreams they had, they gave them up when they were 20 they had children. They retire and they're maybe dead in five to nine years. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I want. I hope I don't. I'll probably die in a set. I, you know, something, you know, just cut. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. Only God knows that. But I mean, I just want to do something I want to do. And these days, how old is Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and, and Clint Eastwood? They know stop. Some could have gotten mad and said, well, then I'm out of here because you don't appreciate me and you thought that I was somebody else and I'm insulted. But you obviously probably didn't do that, right? And, and as they were following you around, again, some people could have gotten mad said these people are breathing down my neck and they won't leave me alone. But you, you kept going with it. I was one of the first black directors in TV in Hollywood. Before me, I think it was Michael Schultz, I think Stan Lathan and Roy Campanella Jr. But to have that opportunity, I went through a lot. I give an example of things, and I, this is in my book. I was the first black director on Dallas, ever. And um, I was so happy because it was, it was a top hit show on TV. I've done a good job on Nice Landing and other shows that. Falcon Crest and other shows, they said, okay, give you a shot. Come up to the gate, run by the studios, roll down the window, look at the security guard. Before I could say a word, the security guard says, uh, who are you delivering for? I said, uh, no, 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 I'm not delivering for anybody. Uh, 
I'm the first black director on Dallas, and I'm here early because I want to be, if you like this one, pull over to the side. I'm always early, so I pull over to the side, and it's like, I told you at 9 o'clock, it's 8.30, then it was 8.40, 8.50. I blow my horn, I say, gets on the phone, he calls up to the office, and uh, looked over at me, back on the phone, looked over at me, back on the phone, close the phone, and say, I'm here, right? He goes like this, he goes, That was my first day. What year was this? Late 70s, early 80s. In Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, walking by the Teamsters one day, <clears throat> I was doing um, Falcon Crest, going to my motorhome with my lunch in my hand, walked by. Train back, train down, I say, okay guys, man up, you got something to say to me. Say it to my face. What are you talking about, sir? I heard what somebody said, somebody called me I said, I tell them to stand up, come on. You're the director of the film, we would never say that. What are you talking about, you some mistake. I think that you misheard us. Get my tray. Turn around, start walking to my motorhome. I'm gonna set a Falcon Crest one day. We're up in Napa Valley and I'm filming and first day D. We're filming in a restaurant, it's a practical location, so we're there, you know, just to shoot. And it's, it's supposed to be quiet in the kitchen, but they got to be told we're shooting, and so the first AD, very arrogant guy, uh, we start shooting at a cut us third time because there's noise in the kitchen. So I say, cut, I say, hey man, there's noise in the kitchen, supposed to calm him down. He, say, he says to me, and I'm quoting, in front of the cast and the crew, if you want him to be quiet, go back there and tell him your own damn self. And by that time, I really had it. So I threw down my headset and I was rushing toward the guy. And Jane Wyman grabbed me by my arm. And she looked me in my face. She said, don't do it. Took a deep breath. Went back to my director's chair, put my headset back on. Time for lunch. Came back. She had fired him. She apologized for him. You see what I'm saying? So knowing that people wanted you to fail, but still holding that confidence, I mean, we've all had times when we've been tested and we can tell someone's egging us on. How have you learned to keep your cool? I know you say you meditate. There are people who want you to fail. But there are great people like Jane Wyman who want you to succeed. 
and David Jacobs gave me several more chances at Knott's Landing and Larry Hagman at Dallas when I first did that show. First black director on Dallas who said to me, nice to meet you young man. We're gonna get along real fine as long as you have me out every day by 3.30. So <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hagman, <laughs> I guarantee you, every day you'll be out by 3.30. Have me come back and do more and more shows. I can tell you stories of people who, um, there's some great people in this industry. I mean, when I say great, I mean, they don't have to give you a shot. But because they're good human beings and they see beyond your color to your humanity and your ability that they do something. They, they don't do it loud. They do it because they're good people. And if you deserve it, they give it to you. They give you the shot because they gave you that chance you do more than you better than you could ever do because you owe that to them and yourself there's some damn good people in this industry when i came along i met a few of them that changed my life i mean but that that's been a you know to be very honest with you and i put this in my biography i grew up as a racist I hated all white people because of slavery and segregation. I saw my father and mother go through. I just hated white people. And I grew up an angry young black man and I was tall and awkward and I didn't talk much and I wrote journals and stuff and da 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 da. And um, these two people I'll never forget. Oh, it changed my life, Mrs. Jean Walker. English teacher, very stoic and like this, walking around the class. And she told me nine times, that's right in my journal when she was teaching, and I just ignored her, this racist white woman. And one day, um, she says, Duke, stay here after class. She says, give me that book. I said, what? The journal, give it to me. I said, I'm not giving you anything. She said, if you don't give me the journal, I'll fail in the class and you can't pass. Threw the journal at her. Pissed off. Hated her. Come back to class the next several weeks before spring break and looked at her like, oh, if I could punch her in your damn face, man. Spring break ends. Come back to class. And the first day, I'm going into class. She says, Duke, come here. She gives me back my journal and this book. I said, what is this? She says, the National Poetry Contest book. So what, what are you giving this to me for? She says, look on page 49. She put two of my poetry poems in there and it won. I looked at her. This is somebody I hated. She had taken, she had read my book, my journal, took the best poems out and submitted them to a national poetry contest and I won a prize.
I was speechless, and she knew I was speechless. She says, there's nothing to say. You're good at what you do. That changed my mind. I wasn't quite sure how to think about race then because that never happened to me. And then I went to Dutch Community College. And, you know, James Hall was the dean. He was in the Navy and stuff. And I'd gotten a scholarship to Boston University after Duchess. And I went to, but you know, it was difficult. I got a scholarship for my classes, but I had to work for room and board and food and everything. And I was working seven days a week, exhausted. And my grades weren't that great. And said, said, da 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 da. Just going to the arts college. I decided I was going to come home to Poughkeepsie, and I was going to stay there for a year, quit BU, and uh, get a job, make money, so I can save it for that at IBM. I went during the summer up to visit my friends at BU, and I'm leaving Dr. Hall. Uh, he says, "Hey, Duke, come here." I said, I, I got to go, Doc. He says, Duke, come here, come here. Oh, gee, this guy's a boring-ass white man. I can't stand this. I go into his office just to be courteous. He says, have a seat. I said, okay. How you doing, Duke? I'm okay. You're going to Boston University, right? Yeah, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm going, but I'm quitting. I'm staying in McKinsey for a year. And, going to go back next year. He says, no, you're not. I said, what are you talking about? He goes into his vest pocket and hands an envelope to me. I said, what is this? He said, open it. In the envelope, it was a check of his own money that paid for three years of my room and board at Boston University. I looked in this man's, white man's face. I'm supposed to hate. He doesn't say a word. We look at each other. I, I just said, Thank you. He did not say a word. He put out his hand and he said, don't disappoint me. See, something happens to your racism after that. That's supposed to be your evil enemy that's responsible for the negative in your life and everything. The devil, the system, the creature, just gave me a check to cover all of my expenses for three years. How do you hate that? Life-changing. So I evolved, you know, in my humanity to understand you cannot put a blanket on any of everything, of anything.
It's all about the human being, the person, the individual, who they really are behind what their skin color is, behind what their words are, their position. It makes no difference to know the human. If they respect you, you respect them. Simple. Arab, Chinese, Japanese, Jewish, white, black, green, Hispanic. Those topical services, that's a limited perception. You have the courage to uh, engage people at their level of humanity. They're living. It's easier to dismiss you because I see you and I make assumptions. I learned a long time ago A-S-S-U-M-E means it makes an ass out of you and an ass out of me <laughs> to assume. And I was taught by those two incidents. It was incredible. If it wasn't for those two people, I wouldn't probably be here today. And never asked for anything. All they said is to be your best. That's a reward. It's the truth. They're met. True story. And very people knew this ever happened. And um, I'm sitting at my monitor one day, and the assistant says, Do you know who's standing behind you? So we talked about Gordon Parks. I said, Get out of here, I'm working. Stop playing. He says, No, Gordon Parks is standing right behind you. He's one of my heroes. So I turn around. And he says, don't get up, don't get up. And he walks to me. He puts my hand on my, his hand on my shoulder. And he says, never stop. Just looked at him and... <sighs> walked away. Was like you're given signs from the universe, you know, and he was one of the things that propelled me into continuing because whenever you get depressed or something, you want to stop and you don't stop because of those people who came along that said, Don't you ever think of stopping. Because I'm not gonna lie to you, there are times I wanted to give up because it's like hard. But then you think of the people who loved you enough to encourage you, you don't stop. And uh, it's also your family's legacy. Could you justify stopping? Hell yeah. Is it unfair? Yes. If you don't fit in a certain boxes, is it prejudice? Yes. Are there people who don't like it because of the color of your skin? Yes. People don't like it because you're as smart as them? Yes. Um, so? I mean, if the boogeyman has got his foot on your neck, you have one of two choices.
he's 10 times bigger than you. So you can say, he's 10 times bigger than me. He's 15 foot tall. And my neck is cracking. I must well surrender and go. That's one choice. Or if his foot is near your mouth, you can bite his toe. I choose toe biting. Because <laughs> you know what? The boogeyman's toe tastes good. <laughs> it really does. No, it's a little, little meaty and chunky. But it's, it's good. <laughs> it's a light snack. Like a little, yeah. it's a little snack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has meditation helped you notice gratitude? Because I think some people see signs that do tell them to keep going, and, and it sounds like you've, you've taken certain things and really taken that to heart and know that this wasn't just a coincidence or this, this was, I, I was meant to hear this, I was meant to have this hand on my shoulder, I was meant to have someone take away my journal and what seems like a bad thing, and then she reads it and it's personal, but then something great comes of it. Meditation saved my life. I was taught meditation, transcendental meditation, TM. By a good friend of mine, I was in a Broadway play and doing very well, but um, I had gotten into drugs because there were times in which the struggle was so difficult, although I was working and challenges and blah, 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 just overwhelmed. And um, it ended up at a point where in a Broadway play and I'd be late to work. I, they told me, don't be late anymore. And it came late again and they said, you're, you're, you're you're not substitute, but your understudy's going in. And I got pissed off and da 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 And my friend who saw this um, said, Bill, you're sinking fast. Man, you have to do something. And I said, like what? She says, I know you like the drugs and alcohol, but try meditation. I said, you're one of those woo-woo people. What the hell out of here? So it got worse. And then she said, try it. Okay, I mean, I'll try. I, uh, so I tried it a couple of times. It was interesting, but I was still taking drugs and alcohol. And, and then after around a month, she said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. She said, if you meditate for six weeks without taking any drugs or alcohol of any kind, and if you still want drugs and alcohol after six weeks, I'll buy you an ounce of anything you want. Now I'm thinking, oh boy, <laughs> an ounce of anything I want? Are you kidding me? I'll do. I'll, I'll take this bet, would you? I just knew it was going to work. It wasn't going to work. First two weeks, I felt something. It was like, I don't know. A little more ease. 
less stress. Second and third week, um, more focus. Fourth and the fifth week, the peace that I was getting out of the drugs and alcohol, I was getting through meditation and more. I was getting a deeper sense of something I can't even explain. Um, I haven't touched drugs or alcohol since that day, and that was in 1974. Became a TM teacher. It changed my life to, I can't even tell you, it's uh, It's hard to explain, you know, I could tell you more stories about what I've been through, but that was God working again, showing me transcendental meditation and changed my life for my own salvation. The lady who asked me to turn around and Miss Walker and Dr. Hall, it's, and, and I recognize these things and people, some people think I'm crazy because I say, well, God is doing this. But, well, what should God look like? I don't know. I know he's there. I trust because there are things that have happened that I know. I'll give you another example. It's in my book. In 1984, I was working really hard, and when your agent says, you're so tired, you've got to take a vacation. <laughs> your agent makes 10% of what you make. When your agent tells you to take a vacation, you know that you're exhausted. So I took a vacation, went to Hawaii, because he had just gotten married and told me to stay at the hotel. And by myself, I just wanted to totally chill. I was there for a week, I was supposed to stay there two weeks. And I said, I want to come back to this place. Never been here, it's beautiful. So I got in the plane called the Island Hoppers. It goes from one island to another and do a ground tour and then you get night go to another island. We're on our way to Maui from the Big Island, and it was a twin-engine plane. And all of a sudden, the, the plane started going shaking. So we all stopped and said, "What the hell?" And it stopped. So we said, "Oh, we started laughing, you know." So we left. It goes, and, we, and the tower says, "Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, and buckle your seats." Now, usually in the movies, when a plane's in trouble, the pilot says, ladies and gentlemen, be calm, be still, we're in control, da-da-da-da-da. Look at what the pilot, this is what the pilot's doing. Help us, Jesus, help us, Mary, help us, Lord, help us, Jesus, help us, Mary, help us, Lord. The pilot, look out the window and say, then we should up close to the, bam. We crash in the water. Now, water seems soft, right? When you hit the water from that height, it went bam, bam. It tore the bolts out of my seat and threw me forward, the scars from that happening. And when that happened, this, it's hard to explain, but it's an out-of-body experience. Something up there looked down, and those sounds crazy, Looked down at me in my seat, 
all the people bleeding, the pilot, and everything. Okay. So this thing, <coughs> I can't explain what it was. It's peaceful, just observing me. Pilot wakes up, so his face hit the dashboard of the plane. Everybody out, get up. And so he did it. This thing and my body merged back together. And I said out loud, because I don't swim. I said, Bill, I said it out loud. You always want to know how you're going to die, and now you know. So I just sat there waiting for the water's coming up, boom, 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 blood's coming up, boom, 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 boom. Pilot gets people out, takes them to the wing. says, hey, you, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. I said, I can't swim. He says, unbuckle your seat. Okay, unbuckle my seat. Take the life donut out. Life donut. Put it around your head. He gives me instructions. Pull the cords. When I got the shorter, like five cords, I looked down and saw a thousand. I kept pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and nothing happened. He left the plane and says, Come to the wing. I said, I don't see. He says, Come to the wing. I got out the wing. I'm standing there. They all paddled away because they all swam and everything. Okay, they go five or six hundred feet away. He says, jump, jump, undertow, undertow. I said, I can't swim. He says, jump. I said to myself, what the hell do I have to lose? I'm going to die anyway. So I jumped. I forgot to tie the life donut around my waist because he had, he had pulled a cord as I, I passed him. It blew up. I forgot to tie it around my waist. I went down once, twice, third time I came up, life, I'm not exaggerating, life donuts here. I put it around my head, like a little dog, I do like this. Then I reach them. I reach them, I turn around, this big mouth of water swallows the plane and takes it under. If I stayed on the wing, I would have died. I'm telling this is all the truth I'm telling you. In the water, 10 minutes passes, people are moaning and groaning. This lady says, look, boats, planes, boats, planes. And my thought is, you know, before you die, because there's sharks in the water and everything, you have these delusional thoughts, and you think you see things. That's what she's doing, right? So I said, she said, boats, planes, boats, planes. Take this to Vegas. You tell me the chances of this happening. Twice a year, the Hawaii Fire Department sends its emergency rescue teams out to do practices in all different parts of the ocean. This day, they were one half nautical miles away from us. They saw our plane go in. They were there in minutes. They took everybody out the water. Wrapped us in blankets. Asked if we were okay. 
and started driving us back to shore. I sat next to the pilot, six foot two or three Ichabod crane, blue eyes. I can see his face dark hair with white streaks through it, sitting, he's shivering, I'm shivering. And I say to him, sir, I don't want to disturb you. I said, but I was in shock. You talked me through getting out of the plane. You talked me to jumping off. You talked me to paddling toward you. You saved my life, and I want to I want to thank you. I cannot know what to say. He looks at me and he says, I appreciate you saying that. He said, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I believe in Jesus Christ. He says, I don't know what you believe in. He said, but don't thank me. Thank that. Turns away from me looks back in my face, grabs my shoulder, and starts crying like a baby. Get back to shore, people are in shock because planes that crash in that water don't have survivors. I have no way of explaining it to say that that's one of the days I realize there are things happening in this universe that are far beyond my intellect. Far beyond my intellect. And I had my two master's degrees and I was so smart. can't even tell you how much I learned from that experience. I have pictures on the wall of my condo up there of that day from the newspaper. I saved it and just framed it. I never want to forget it. It's just, so it, it, it shaped my life. Between those experiences and meditation, it just shaped my life. And made me understand that, you know, And you're writing a biography, autobiography. So I'm going to steal a C-SPAN question. I, I've watched uh, The Post. They interviewed Catherine Graham years ago. And she wrote a, a tell-all book about The Post and her family and the troubles with her husband and his depression, things like that. And the interviewer said, why do you want people to know this? She said, good question. I started, and I was only going to tell one thing, and, and I just I kept going. I couldn't stop. I'm writing this book for all the losers in the world. For all the people that have been told you cannot do it, you're a loser, you're too stupid, you're too ugly, you're too dumb, you're too black, you're too whatever, you're never gonna make it. I've been called all those things and worse. I 
I'm writing this book because I want children who are going through similar things and never give up on themselves. If I can get through it, so can you. Never, never, whether you're five or a hundred, never give up. It's never too late. You determine your reality. Are there forces that help shape the, the, the context around you? Of course there are. I mean, but what is your responsibility? Because the boogeyman's bigger than you, you don't, you don't fight back, you don't do nothing, you don't bite his toe, you don't do nothing. You just talk about the size of the boogeyman, how long he's been on your neck, uh, the color of the boogeyman, uh, the boogeyman system, uh, the boogeyman's, uh, how can I say, the odor of his breath. You can describe every aspect of the boogeyman for the rest of your damn life. Or you can bite his toe. Now, you ain't going to kill him if you bite his toe. But toes are sensitive. <laughs> There's going to be some movement. All you need is a little bit. A little bit. But you're not going to bite? Well, that's your definition of your possibilities in life. I can't bite because the boogeyman's so big and I'm so weak. Goodbye. Shit. Sorry, not me, not me, never. You got to have, um, I guess a couple of bullets. They better hit something that's vital. they can remove them, I'm coming back. Never give up. Never. And as my family used to say, to the people who try to stop you and put you down, there's only one phrase that they deserve, and that is this. I ain't as dumb as you look. I ain't as damn dumb as you look. We can keep talking. But I want you to know something. I ain't as dumb as you look. You know, it's interesting. Once they see that, ooh, they... They know that you're not playing checkers in a chess game. You're playing chess. As long as they're both playing chess, let's play. So I got some damn moves too. Let's just play. Don't tell me how good a checker player I am. That's what I feel. I would imagine, Bill, that you get emails every day from people who are asking for career advice. 
Can you tell from some of the emails those who really want help and those you may not be able to help? Yes. There are people who somehow they think something's going to be given to them. And there are other people who reach out to you for guidance of how they can get it themselves. The people who ask for guidance of how they can get it for themselves, I'm interested in them. Because they're not asking me to do it for them. They're saying, you've had experience and I'm willing to listen to you so I don't make crazy mistakes. And so those people I relate to because somebody did that for me. But people who come out and they just want, as you so eloquently spoke before, um, notoriety. They're not serious about this industry, not serious about being a great actor or a great writer, a great producer, or a great director. They just want to be seen and have people know who they are. I don't take them seriously. And I have a foundation. <coughs> we teach it's called the Duke Media Foundation, and we teach kids media literacy, which are what are the jobs of the future going to be, and financial literacy. If you make money, how do you not just spend it, how do you use it? And so, <coughs> kids, especially young kids that are serious, we can get an opportunity to help them, we do. I think just validity and coming out here with dreams and wanting us to be, I guess, recognized and notoriety, but that's not a serious craft or industry. That's just some insecurities you have that you want to overcome. So when you receive an email, how can you tell the ones that really are looking to find ways how they can then do it themselves and those who just want sort of a hand up? They say it. They're very clear. I mean, you know, there's some people who are so unaware of how this place works. They'll say like, um, oh, I want an agent, and I know you have an agent. Can you introduce me to your agent? I'm saying, do you have any pictures? No, I don't have any pictures. Okay, you have a reel? No, I don't have a reel. Have you ever acted in a film or a play? No, but I have an acting teacher. And, uh, and, People think I'm handsome. They, they, they really think I'm beautiful and they, they, they think I'm talented. What do you say to that? I mean, I, I feel 
okay, I, I, God knows I wish you luck, but you're coming out here with nothing? And you want me to just drive you to meet my agent? It doesn't work that way. Then there are kids, they have pictures, resume, decks. If they have a project, they have decks for their project, pictures, actors attached. They then the research for the demographic of what they're trying to sell to, the return on your investment, how much money it. Now, when I see that, I say, whoa, <laughs> come here, <laughs> let's talk. Because you're serious. I, I, I can still, I can teach you, but you don't need that much teaching. All you need is opportunity. See, that's a different experience. If you're just looking for, I want to meet your agent. It's, I don't be mean, but I just I can't, I can't do that. The agent says to me, why did you bring that person here? They want to meet you. That's not good. Is there any mistake that you made early on in your career that you said never again? And it's not so much working with someone or whatever, it's more something either you did or something you didn't pick up on about a situation that cost you. And you said, I will never. Uh, I was offered a role. I'm not going to tell you the role, it was a TV show. So I was playing, playing this role that I did not like, and I think it was an embarrassing role of a pimp. But I had been trying to get a job in TV for like three years and couldn't get anything. Rejection, rejection, rejection. So I went for this role, audition, and I got the role. And friends of mine sold the script, and they said, don't do it. Totally broke, rent was due. I was able to give me some something. It was, a, it was a hit TV show, too. I did. I did it. When I saw the footage, I said, oh my god, I'm And maybe five to seven years later, when I had some real money, I called the network and tried to buy, <laughs> I tried to buy the footage back that I was in and to buy the episode, and I said I'd pay whatever they, they wouldn't sell it to me. That's how ashamed I was. But needed the money. Needed the job. I haven't done it since then. But I understand. And before that, I used to put down the step and fetch it. So I used to put down people that came before me that did, you know, they smiled, laughed, and danced, and didn't act like, you know, happy black people and maids and butlers and stuff. And I said, they're shaming the race and that, that, that. No, no. They took the jobs that were offered to them at that time to do the best that they could with what they had. And my respect for them changed totally because I was faced with the same thing. 
and I grew to understand why they did what they did. But I was fortunate enough not to have to do it again. And I haven't had to do it since. But, and I still get these opportunities, but to turn down something, it can make you a lot of money, a lot of people would see, but it's totally against everything you stand for as an actor and artist and everything. I mean, certain people put down certain people because of what they did in the show or whatever, and I, I, don't, I don't do that anymore, I just say. You don't know their circumstance. You got a sick baby at home, you got a sick baby at home. You got to take care of your bills. I don't know his business. I am not fond of reality TV, though. I'm not going to lie. I was in out of the country, and I was asked questions about my culture based on reality TV, and I was saying, no, that's not the way every black person in the world, not every black person's women dragged across the, their, across the floor by their hair, and and every black man wears his pants below his butt line. And we thought all blacks uh, said no. Because we were looking at your pants and we wonder why you didn't have your pants. Was this in Belgium when you, when you saw the one guy at the restaurant? <laughs> no, nothing against Belgium, but I was just wondering if it was the same trip. Yeah, it was like, it was like you know, it was like, not, this one I was in China years ago. I was in China. I was in China, and I was in Japan, and uh, in Tokyo, and um, they just uh, it said there was something wrong with me because I didn't look like the regular black people. <laughs> and they said, uh, you speak good, too. Did they know your work? Uh, some of them did. But at that time, not a lot of them, they just, oh, you're here filming, oh, good, good. I have some questions for you. <laughs> you know, I was in shock in a way, but not in a way, you know, because I know the stuff that gets to them, that's how they see us as a culture. And I just was amazed by how many people thought of us that way. But media is very powerful. And that's whatever they see, that's who you are. Going back real quickly, 1984, you said it was a book that you would be one of the five books that you would take with you if you couldn't read any other books. I was just curious, why 1984? I want to get in trouble for this, but 1984 something we're living today. George Orwell was one of my favorite books at the time, but I've been reading, looking at the film and reading the book since this last election. And it has a section about the thought police. You guys have read that, 1984? Um, I know parts of it. I haven't read it by George Orwell. Yes. But I, I've heard the whole concept about the thought police. But the thought police. In 1984, I mean, you're not allowed 
to do anything without the permission of the thought police. And um, they determine your reality. They, they, they create this war, and it's not really a war that's happening at all. But they have these soldiers marching and all this stuff, and blah, 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 blah. You're not allowed to have a relationship without their permission. You can't just fall in love. You have to have their permission. Go through them. So Richard Burton is the head of the thought police. And John... Um, Great actor John, I forgot his name, but anyway. He is a citizen, and he and this young girl fall in love. They keep meeting secretly at his place and her place and running away and running. And one day, that thought, caught by the thought police, and the helicopters come, and the soldiers come in and captivate them both and take them to the thought police headquarters. And John, the actor, I forgot his name, was lying on the table, the thought police headquarters, and there's a spotlight on the table. He's lying there naked with his hands tied and his feet tied, and it's electrical force it comes through the, through the table with a switch. That if you turn the switch on, it just electrocutes you, and there's water coming down his throat. And so, um, there's a guy near the button. And Richard Burton is sitting there, and John is, I'm so sorry, I was wrong. I did, I sh I did the wrong thing, I'm, I apologize. I never should have ever, ever, ever seen her. And, then I, and Richard Burton says, well, you know, she said that you started it. He says, well, I don't, I don't know, I just, he says, it's okay, it's okay. And uh, he says, Richard Burton, I'll never do it again, please forgive me. For want to trust, but verify. So he says to John, he says, how many things am I holding up? John says, four. Richard Burton nods at the guy with the button. John, ah, 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 ah. What did I do wrong? What did I, what's wrong? How many fingers am I holding up? Four. Ah, 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 ah. What did I do wrong? How many fingers am I holding up? I don't know. I don't know. Better. How? Many fingers am I holding up? Three, three. Good boy. I'm holding up as many fingers as I tell you, yes, I'm holding up. You got nothing to do with your eyes? Nothing to do with your intellect or your mind. But I say it's three fingers. How many are there? Three. Three. Good boy. Alternative facts. 
Isn't three an alternative fact? <laughs> you will believe what we tell you to believe. Nothing to do with your perspective at all. Okay. Not me. I say. 